if people are going to see logical relations, say between premises and conclusions, they can see that the conclusion follows. But if they don't care about that logical relation, yeah. then there's nothing you can really do. Right. What it's like they're... What reason could you could you posit to someone who doesn't respect reason? That's what right. What evidence could you give them if yeah. they don't respect you, evidence? No, you, you, I mean, you can't really give any evidence if they're not sensitive to evidence. You can try and make it sexy or, you know, get a celebrity, you know, which is how we try and convince people to change their behaviour in the right. real world. We create a brand around it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, it's really like your past. It's not the time for philosophy. It's the time for walking away or... Or, you know, changing the subject. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. So uh, my name's John Hadley. I'm a philosopher in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. And today I'm talking about my research and my career with uh, Blab Coates. Awesome. Um, what field of philosophy do you deal with primarily? So I'm an ethicist, so I work in ethics, and I'm particularly focused upon uh, ethical issues associated with humans mm -hmm. and their relations with other species. So animals and the environment considered as a whole. That is really interesting for um, our audience because one of the topics we wanted to touch on later was the efficacy of uh, scientific testing on animals. Uh -huh. But let's, um, let's probably start with, like, because we haven't had a philosopher on the show before. Right. And a lot of people probably have this idea in their head that they know what philosophy is, but I bet uh -huh. if you ask them to articulate it, they couldn't. Okay. So, so I guess our first question is, what is philosophy? Mm. All right. So uh, I think the best way to answer this question is with reference to the kinds of questions that philosophers address and also with a simple metaphor, the idea of philosophy, the discipline, as a tree. And the tree has different branches. So one branch is called metaphysics. And metaphysics is the, the study of being or what there is in the world. So the philosopher might ask a question like, um, what is the fundamental nature of reality? And you get rival views on that. So one group of philosophers might say, well, the fundamental constituent of reality is matter. And you might get different theories of matter. So that kind of approach is um, known as physicalism or materialism. And the fundamental constituent of reality is, say, the atom or the neutrino or some kind of physical thing. 
A rival view would be a dualist who says, no, 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 look, there is some aspects of reality that science cannot capture that are not explained best in terms of matter. And we need to posit the existence of some other stuff, some kind of immaterial stuff, to account for things like numbers, minds, gods perhaps, things like that. So that is a metaphysical debate. So philosophers ask those kind of metaphysical questions. Another branch is epistemology. And in the epistemological branch, it deals with knowledge. So what is knowledge? When we say that we know something, what are we talking about? How is knowledge different from opinion? What is truth? Is truth connected to knowledge? And you get philosophers exploring and trying to answer those questions. And then another branch is ethics, which deals with right and wrong, good and bad, the value of certain things, the value of human life, the value of animal life. Is there any value amongst ecosystems and species, those kind of collections, or is value just a function of individuals? And then another branch is logic, so the study of argument and methods of inquiry. Uh, and then there's kind of rival views about whether there should be another branch, say aesthetics, looking at beauty and art and things like that. Some philosophers think that's a sub-branch of ethics because it's dealing with value, aesthetic value as opposed to ethical value. So I guess, you know, um, you can thi think of philosophy as like a noun, as in picking out a discipline, or you can think of it as like an activity, you know, a, a particular method. So everybody kind of philosophizes whenever they kind of explore a deep question or think about how to live, things like that. And it's only kind of in the last, I guess, 300 years it became a discipline in its own right. Prior to that, you found philosophers everywhere. You know, some of the early scientists were considered philosophers, some politicians and bureaucrats were considered philosophers. It only became a discipline itself where everyone says, hey, that's a philosopher, you know, relatively recently. Is, is there something, so you've described this tree, which is a, is a great uh, metaphor and to think about, but is there something, like, what's the trunk of this tree? Mm. What binds all of those different disciplines okay. together? Good question. So I guess it would be a commitment to the idea of truth and to the idea of inquiry being a productive, worthwhile exercise. Uh, all of the disciplines are committed to the idea that you know, when we argue through things, when we explore things, we're doing something that is worthwhile. We're not, it's not like art. We're not just creating something for its own sake or for some kind of experience. We're actually producing knowledge that is important. And if you like, it's kind of functionally similar to a faith. You know, it's an article of faith that philosophy is actually producing knowledge and truth and those kinds of things. And if there is something that, I guess, uh, the, 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 the trunk consists in, it would be that kind of commitment, that knowledge is, is worthwhile having and that, you know, it's part of a worthwhile human life and indeed consistent with the kinds of higher order thinking creature that we are, that we pursue these questions, you know, and, and we, can, we can get good answers to them. It's part of the human condition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel a little uncomfortable with the word faith because mm. faith uh, mm. kind of indicates or implies that there's a lack of evidence and you have to take it 
on that on the mm. paucity of evidence. Whereas I think what you're saying is, when we pursue philosophy, we can see real um, beneficial outcomes rather than something like the faith that we're uh, that you're espousing is one that has actually shown utility. Well, y yeah. I mean, I think, but that's that's an empirical question. So you need a philosopher to work out what utility means. Right. You know, <laughs> so, so, you know, it may be and that the world... utility has value it, in it, and of itself. That's <laughs> right. Well, it may be that, say, say if you were going to go with the utilitarians who defined utility in terms of happiness, mm. right, it may be that everyone is happiest not exploring these kinds of questions, right. okay? And, uh, or it could be that we are happiest exploring those questions. So I guess you're right in that, you know, philosophers do like to think that what we're doing is ultimately contributing to making the world a better place. Is, is this, um, sorry, sorry to yeah. cut you off. Because um, I, I was just thinking that I like to describe myself as a skeptic, right? Yeah. Um, but that's, for me, an ideological position. Mm. It means when I say I'm a skeptic, it means mm. similar to what you're saying about philosophy. It means I'm committed to finding out the truth. Mm. Yeah, I'm committed mm. to having epistemologies or ways of mm. thinking that direct me to truth. Mm. And, and in a sense, that's a personal preference of mine. Mm. It's a, I guess you use the term faith. I, I, yeah. I use the term ideology. But is that possibly the context that you mean it in? I, I, I think that's kind of getting close to it. You know, yeah. it's a bit like, I mean, I don't want to, to use the religion analogy, push it too far, but it is a bit like, you know, um, say if you take Christianity, you've got two sides, so to speak, Anglicans and Catholics, and they both believe that there is, um, you know, a point to what they're doing. They're both committed to, you know, some shared values or whatever, but they fundamentally disagree about really important questions. And I guess philosophers kind of set that first dispute aside and then argue about the second set of questions, you know. Yeah. But you have to actually accept that truth is a thing and it's worth pursuing. Otherwise, you know, why bother taking issue with somebody why bother presenting an argument? Why bother analysing a concept? Unless it's just an enjoyable thing to do, like creating art or falling in love or something. Um, but we like to think it's kind of matters more than that. In the same way that a scientist might think that, you know, they're part of a larger project. You know, s science is a useful uh, method. It's, it's worthwhile being a part of and everyone is better off when it works the way it's supposed to work. And so you enter into that discipline with a respect for the project and the constraints that are upon you in that. And they are, you know, they set the ground rules, if you like. They, they guide your conduct. And well, philosophy is the same. You know. It's not supposed to be like art. You're not just supposed to make this stuff up. You're supposed to be subjected to certain constraints, and these constraints have authority. Mm. But you know, where do they come from? Right. You know, mm. they're not they're not divinely sent down to us. They're right. just they're, they've just emerged, and and we have to kind of take their authority for granted. Mm. And that's the kind of faith. Right, and it's, it's, it's like this assumption, or it's, some, uh, it's it's the axioms 
basically these foundational like how, how do you know that reason works well it, it works like you have to just take it on that's right faith that reason works logic works yeah um, and by using that then we can understand the universe and how it works but you have to make that first assumption mm. to, to get started yeah that's right so so if if people aren't going to if people are going to see logical relations, say between premises and conclusions, they can see that the conclusion follows. But if they don't care about that logical relation, then there's nothing you can really do. Right. What, it's like they're. What reason uh, could you could you posit to someone who doesn't respect reason? That's what right. What evidence could you give them if yeah, they don't respect you, evidence? No, you, you. I mean, you can't really give any evidence if they're not sensitive to evidence. You can try and make it sexy or you know get a celebrity you know which is how we try and convince people to change their behavior in the right. real world we create a yeah. brand around it yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that you know it's really like your past it's not the time for philosophy it's the time for walking away or yeah. or you know changing the subject i wanted to talk a little bit um, about the value of philosophy um, mm. we probably touched on it a little just with this uh, intro there but um, we both come from a scientific yeah. background and, and one critique I have of my peers in science is quite often I hear kind of this downplaying of philosophy that it's just waffle and it's not yeah. important and like yeah. what's the use of it? It's armchair science. Yeah, yeah. And, and we um, and Hamid and I both did the Masters of Research program here uh -huh. which um, I'm very happy to say actually touches on quite a bit of philosophy yeah, yeah, yeah. at the start, particularly epistemology and yeah, ontology philosophy yeah. Yeah. and philosophy yeah. of science yeah. as yeah. well. Um, and a lot of the attitudes of the students just coming out of usually undergrad science degrees mm. and that is like, why are we doing this philosophy mm. kind of garbage? I like, mm. I just want to get into the science. Mm. So perhaps you could touch on one, the problem with that idea. And secondly, like what is the value of philosophy? Like why do we, why do we need to care about philosophy? Well, okay, so uh, I guess, well, I, I'm going to give my honest opinion. This yeah. may not be the philosopher's party line, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think there is any kind of um, necessary reason why somebody should, and it's not for everybody. Like, if you don't really have an inquiring mind, if you don't like exploring the big questions, like if you've never really kind of stood back and questioned your life, it's probably going to seem like something that is esoteric, uh, luxuriant, and really unhelpful. Um, it, it, it does appeal to a certain kind of person, in the same way that some scientists might like the kind of constraints that the scientific method mm -hmm. imposes upon them. Mm. But if you think about uh, ethics particularly, how do we distinguish good science from bad? How do we know which projects to fund and which not to fund. Uh, you know, there's what kind of character traits do we want in a good scientist, in a good, you know, plumber, in a good bureaucrat? You know, like there, there seems to be a sense in which if it's not explicit, it's at least implicit in a lot of what we do. And so I guess philosophy can be useful insofar as those things are interesting to people to explore those ideas in more um, more detail. So, you know, w what scientific projects should we support? Or what values is, is society interested in now? So you need the, the ethics particularly to, to understand the values, to identify the values. 
But I think on an individual level, in, independent of how you may go about your vocation, I mean, it's not a, again, it's not a very uh, popular thing to say, and I can imagine a lot of science students rolling their eyes, but really um, a philosophy experience is not about training you for a vocation. It may be useful in your vocation to bring philosophical insights, but I know this sounds like a cliche. It's really about opening your mind, freeing your mind, I guess. So it's part of a lifelong learning thing. That's how I would sell it now. And, it, you know, it's something that you can, you can keep with you, that kind of analysis, that kind of appreciation of these big questions throughout your, your whole life. So it's, it's preparing somebody for life and, and really putting them in a position to control their own life. So, so it is, you know, when I was talking before about truth and, and what is the trunk of the tree, there is a sense in which freedom is really important too. Freedom and autonomy for the kinds of creatures we are. And philosophy kind of, you know, equips you to really think about life and what's important. There's um, some empirical basis for that as well, isn't there? I think there's been some studies in the UK, was it, that uh, where they teach philosophy to school children and then mm. track their progression in things like literacy and mathematics. Yeah. And they find that just the act of, teaching philosophy mm. helps in all these other disciplines anyway so mm. that kind of really touches to the heart of what you're saying that it's about growth as a person and teaching people ways of thinking that kind of helps in other areas yeah there there, there is a kind of a growing body of um, empirical evidence uh, based on um, job placements in the uk and the us that is emerging about where philosophers are placed with um, respect to income and other kinds of graduates and amongst arts graduates we're doing uh, quite well well it, it, it makes sense I mean doing philosophy doing a unit in undergrad and and the first year of the MRES was a lot of philosophy of science and epistemology it teaches you to think more clearly I think that's one of the biggest benefits that, I, that I've experienced going into science and merging those two actually you know, when I'm looking at experiments and results or reading studies, I actually think about the epistemology, how they know what they know mm. and, and whether their claims and assertions can be justified by the evidence. So I think that's one, one clear benefit um, to me personally. Let's shift towards, you're talking about the, um, the field of ethics. What, how did you get into philosophy and in particular the, the philosophy of ethics? Okay, so, so I had a quite an unusual uh, entry to philosophy. So when I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And um, my family had a business in the electroplating industry. So electroplating, you might know, is putting a dustproof or rust, uh, sorry, a rustproof or a decorative surface on metal. And the key process of that is electrolysis. And my uh, father had a small business where we blended chemicals for electroplating baths. And I went into that the, the Monday after my last exam. And I worked in that warehouse for about 10 years, mixing chemicals, driving a truck, um, you know, m driving a forklift, etc. And when I was pushing 30, I thought I'd like to do something else. And at that time, it was difficult to get into university 
uh, into an arts degree. Um, I was um, thinking about Sydney University. You had to actually compete to get in as a mature age student. And one way you could do that was to do a year-long preparation course. And it involved three essays and an exam. And I wanted to do psychology. You could do psychology, English or philosophy. I knew nothing about philosophy at all. And I enrolled in this program and they said, I'm sorry, psychology's full. Why don't you do philosophy? <laughs> and I, I knew nothing about it. I thought, okay. And uh, I went along to that unit and I just kind of, I guess, got hooked. I uh, had a very good teacher and he really uh, sold the importance of it. And I just found it intuitively interesting. So when I got into... Um, the arts degree I just chose philosophy as a as a major and then just kind of kept going being a mature age student I guess I was a little bit more productive than a lot of my other students my, my peers less distracted perhaps and and I ended up doing honours and then my honours um, teacher supervisor said look there's these scholarships you should consider getting a scholarship and I, and I had no idea you could get paid to study, you know. So I, so I, um, I got a scholarship and then, um, you know, just kind of hit upon um, a topic for my PhD and managed to get a few publications during my PhD. So when I finished, um, I was kind of on the job market and quite competitive. Mm -hmm. And then I lucked out getting a job teaching um, ethics to journalism students mm -hmm. in Bathurst, west of Sydney. So just to get back, that's how I got into philosophy. How I got into ethics was I'd taken a number of kind of political philosophy units. And po political philosophy and ethics kind of overlaps a lot. Uh, in fact, some people think you should think of political philosophy as like a, a sub-branch of applied ethics or of ethics. So I'd done an honours thesis on environmentalism. And so I was looking, in my honours thesis, I was exploring the political philosophy of libertarianism and whether environmental limits to property rights could be found in libertarianism. Because even, you know, libertarianism is taken as kind of the, the hardest philosophy to find anything other regarding, like environmental. So libertarian. Sorry, sorry, just break that down. Yeah. Unpack that a bit. Okay, so, so unpack that. That's okay. my philosophical term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so other regarding just means altruistic. So libertarianism is a very kind of self-interested, self-focused. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's a straw man to say it's self-interested, but it's basically the individual can do whatever they want. So of course, if somebody owns a block of land with significant habitat on it or high conservation value forest, the libertarians say they can chop it down, no problems whatsoever. So I wanted to try and challenge that idea. And so uh, that was the focus of my honours thesis. And during my honours thesis, uh, thinking about the individual focus of libertarianism and the collective focus of the environment, I thought, well, how about if you kind of explored the individual focus within the environment instead of thinking about the environment as a whole you looked at individual animals individual trees individual rivers blah 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 how does that work out and that kind of got me thinking about the moral status of individuals outside of the human species so m mammals reptiles birds those kinds of things and so then in my PhD I just combined 
the two together and, and I developed the, or I explored the idea of extending property ownership mm. to wild animals. That, that's really interesting because I, I was, while preparing for this interview, I actually looked up a few articles where you were saying just that. And so what would be the utility of giving animals? And this might sound like a radically crazy idea to people who are like, what? It would be, yeah. We're gonna, and I saw that farmers or the farmers yeah, union yeah, yeah. Were, were pushing really heavily against this idea. Sure. Can you, can you just uh, talk about what would be the utility of giving animals property rights? Well, the way that I um, ex present it is that it's an extension of our existing habitat protection of system so the, the existing uh, system is based on um, uh, a farmer having to prepare a vegetation or a property holder having to prepare a vegetation management plan where they identify what kind of species are at risk from their proposal and then that is sent to a um, government department to see that it ticks all the boxes and that the information is accurate and then the government department makes a decision and gets the landholder to either amend or uh, um, gives approval for the plan. Um, all I'm suggesting in my theory of property rights in order to ground it in the real world is that there ought to be a kind of an intermediate step in that process instead of giving all of the decision to a, a, um, a landholder, uh, a bureaucrat and a landholder that a guardian can step forward and make a case for the species at risk. Uh, it could be just a chance for a cooling off period to sit down, engage in a discussion uh, with the landholder. Perhaps you think of this, or maybe you could amend your plans in some way, that kind of thing. So that's how it would translate in the real world. Uh, it's not a hell of a lot different. We already have that kind of process. The theory is just pretty straightforward. I'm taking existing theories of property ownership and how individuals come to acquire exclusive ownership of unowned land and then saying, look, how does that work across to animals? What kind of case can we make for individual animals? Uh, so it has the kind of theoretical component and the practical component. But of course, when uh, uh, I first introduced it on the conversation, uh, it was beat up uh, just f in the usual way mm. and presented as an extreme kind of activity. But I don't really think it, it is extreme because, you know, clearly biodiversity uh, decline is increasing. Habitat destruction is acknowledged as a big problem. The existing system doesn't seem to be working. Mm. But, you know, we can't really get away from the existing system. Mm. You know, we, we do live in a liberal democracy where people are given ownership rights over parcels of land so there's only regulation that is really going to stop this process so all I'm suggesting is that we can explore this additional step in the approval process so this approval process if I understood it correctly was for unowned or unclaimed land is, is that what it no 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 so so like so the theory the philosophical theory yeah. which kind of gives us our picture of who and what can be a legitimate property owner was a st was kind of um, first explored by philosophers in the 18th century. And then you had the enclosure movement. And the enclosure movement was a movement in England where the commons, which was co uh, community-owned land, or, or the community had access to the land. Mm -hmm. People could run sheep over it or, 
or use it to grow things, you know, and it was basically common property. Uh, certain uh, interest groups came along and said, look, we want an exclusive parcel of that land. We want to work that ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the philosophers had to kind of give a justification for this process. How can you justify giving somebody exclusive ownership of land? Right. So there are um, a number of uh, existing theories mm. about that process mm. and that has shaped what it is to acquire property right. so just just to um, to quickly run through them yeah, yeah. the most influential was the philosopher John Locke who has what's called the labor mixing theory so if you come across an unknown parcel of land and you're willing to work it to mix your labor with the land that entitles you to exclusive possession of it then there are other views, first occupancy. If you were first there, mm. then it's yours. Right. And then the view that I think, I don't think either of those theories work very well for animals um, for various reasons that uh, we don't really need to explore here. But there is a third view, which is just kind of on the idea of basic needs. Mm. And that if, the, if an individual uses this land for their basic needs, mm then there ought to be a presumption in favour of allowing them access. It may not give them exclusive ownership, but at least gives them an access right. And it's that kind of argument, I think, can work for animals, given that it's, it's un uncontroversial that they use natural resources or natural goods. And so that kind of works best. So these animals, would this be domesticated animals having rights or wild animals? Yeah, so... so um, How would you apply that theory? Yeah, because that's yeah. what I was going to get. Because okay. you mentioned that individuals... When that's we right. think individuals as a human, yeah. I think other humans. Yeah, But how that's do we right. get to this idea of an okay. animal being an individual? Sorry, just to, before we get... Is your computer actually charging? Yeah, yeah look, it's full charge. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. I couldn't see the charge so, on, I was worried. So <laughs> the... Uh, good question. So the justification based on basic needs... Um, really allows us to distinguish between wild and domestic. So domestic animals have their needs met by other means. And uh, when we're talking about high conservation value forests or natural resources, it, it's only really wild animals that is applicable to. But of course, you know, um, this is where philosophical theory and real world values come into conflict because um, you're right, one of the major philosophical um, problems, arguably, with animal ethics is that it does not allow you to distinguish between native species and introduced species. If, in line with orthodox animal ethics, all that matters is psychology, then if that psychology is in a um, bandicoot or a feral cat, that's all that matters, wherever the psychology is. And there isn't really a principled way between distinguishing entitlements for the bandicoot and entitlements for the feral cat. Uh, so it makes it very hard to reconcile environmentalism with animal ethics, which is what I was trying to do with that property rights idea. Restrict it to natives in a principled way and in the process get a new way of protecting the... Um, larger environmental space. So by giving animal rights, I can see one obvious utility, that is that companies can't 
come and just chop down rainforests because yep. those animals have a claim to that land. That's right. The survival of their species is contingent. Or the individuals. Or the individuals is contingent yep. on them uh, having access to resources mm. to that land. Mm. Um, let's 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 shift the topic a little bit towards the ethics of should we start with animal. Um, consumption or and or well, I think what may be a little bit more confronting for our audience, and I'm always like keen to <laughs> be confronting, sure. is looking at the ethics of animal testing in mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if animals, if it's right to look at animals as individuals to protect the environment, mm. what are the implications then for scientific testing? Because a lot of animals are dying, and some could even argue quite sentient animals are dying in the name of scientific testing. Sure. A lot of scientists probably sit here and say, that's justified, right? Yeah. I need to get my experiment finished. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. The experiment has utility, so they have a utilitarian I'm perspective sure. of humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So this piece of knowledge might save millions in the future. That's right. So it's justified to kill a thousand yep. rats in the experiment. That's right. My experiment doesn't go according to plan. That's right. So, okay, so uh, there's a lot in in this issue, so let's tr- break it down. Mm-hmm. So when you use the term testing, um, that implies product testing or say cosmetic testing on animals, right? Um, let's include that in just uh, alongside research into uh, physiology, surgical training, diseases, all of those things. Let's just call it the use of animals in biomedical research, yeah. okay? so. Um, it is a really big issue and a lot depends on how much importance we're placing on the animal so at present we have ethics committees all of your listeners who do animal-based research would no doubt be familiar with ethics committees Mm -hmm. so there's a kind of a, a recognition right off the bat that you know this is an important serious thing that needs to be acknowledged uh so then the question is, is the ethics committee system doing justice or getting the ethics right? Mm. Doing justice to the animals and getting the ethics right. Uh, and that's, I guess, where, we, where the arguments start. Mm. Uh, how much weight is given to the interests of the animals? Is there a principled way of you know, giving the animals interest in not suffering and continuing to live and not being used as an experiment? Uh, less weight than we would give the interests of a human being uh, in not suffering and being used in experiments. The standard animal ethics view is that no, there isn't a principled way to do that. Uh, And most ways that ethics committees operate just don't give enough weight to the interests of the animals concerned. Uh, But, you know, it's going to vary according to the species used. It's not just mammals that are used there's a lot of fish and and um, you know invertebrates used in research so a lot turns on uh, you know what species is actually being used so so just to to clarify the the uh, animal ethics position is very sensitive to the latest evidence from scientific research into animal sentience that is animal psychology and, um, you know, including fish and invertebrates and all these kinds of things. So the idea is that the orthodox view is that certainly mammals, but also birds, mm-hmm. are sentient. That is, they have an experiential welfare. They can feel pleasure and pain. Mm. 
Uh, it's a matter of active controversy whether invertebrates uh, also and fish also feel uh, pain mm -hmm. and uh, experience, have an experiential welfare, etc. And then it's another really important question again whether killing the animals is a problem. And for a lot of people that turns on, or a number of ethicists, that turns on the higher order psychological capacities over and above mere sentience, mm -hmm. whether the animal has a concept of the future, can think about itself into the future, etc., mm. etc. Et so, so looking at the ethics of using animals in research, two, I guess, main issues. One is the pain and suffering, and the other is the killing. And then, I guess, if you really wanted to go to a, a particular animal rights position, there's the broader question about whether it's appropriate to use them at all. I guess, I guess let's touch on that very last point. Mm -hmm. um, is there any justification to using animals in, in that sense in scientific experiments? Is there an argument um, where people can use, okay, because we get benefit from using animals in such a way yep. for our own species, does that justify using them in, in that way? Okay. Is that morally morally yeah, so, so what you're saying is that because <coughs> um, you mentioned looking at the sentience of the animal. Yeah. Um, but what about not the value of the research? Not even that. I'm just stepping back from the specifics. Yep. Just saying, can you justify animal research even if it was done as ethically as possible? Okay. So so the okay, um, and this is where I'm really going to come up against the intuitions of your listeners. The the view is that the only justifiable research on animals, mm. right? And I'm talking about not, um, and there's even views that say there isn't, mm. but would be, um, s would require you to at least be willing in principle to do it on a human being of comparable capacities. Because there's no way to distinguish psychology in this species and psychology in that species. I mean, the, I guess one of the most important ideas in animal ethics is the concept of speciesism. Mm. That is discriminatory to use animals and not human beings of comparable capacities, right? So like disabled people, mentally impaired well, people? Well, people who are severely cognitively impaired or, um, yeah, people like that. So like, no one's going to do that in the real world. This is a armchair philosophical argument. You ask me whether it's justified. On philosophical grounds, it's very difficult to do unless we are willing to use humans as well, because otherwise we're just giving less weight to the interests of other species. And the claim is, like race and gender, species is an irrelevant biological category when we're talking about pain and suffering. Does, is it almost like a self-defeating argument? If Because um, <coughs> then if you take the position that it is justified to do it to other species as well, um, and not to humans, then you're kind of ignoring the, uh, I'm getting this idea out properly. <laughs> but it, it, uh, let me start. If, if, if you're saying that, uh, that it isn't justified and we would be prepared to do it on humans as well as other species, mm. then there's no point in doing animal research because you just do it on humans. So, well, so that kind of like, yeah. yeah well, well, it may still be there's, there's particular diseases that you're willing to do on that you're interested in investigating that only apply to animals. 
But, you know, a lot turns on what kind of moral instrument we give to psychology. So the notion of rights, okay, um, the concept of a right can be understood in two ways. One is a guarantee to something, say a right to health care, guarantees you a right to certain kinds of health care. And someone has to provide that to you, right? It might be the state or whatever. Or you can understand a right as a protective shield, freedom from certain things. So a right not to be tortured or a right um, not to be humiliated, something like that. And that just requires people to leave you or the rights bearer alone, mm -hmm. right? So if animals are given rights in that protective shield sense, mm -hmm. then they're not to be used at all. Mm. In the same way that it would be um, outrageous to use a human being, right? So I guess animal rights says, look, humans are given rights in the protective shield sense. They're given rights in the other sense too, but at least when we're talking about use in biomedical research, they're given the protective shield sense then animals ought to be given the protective shield sense of rights as well and therefore protected from any kind of usage. Because what has somebody's project or purposes got to do with the individual? They're just going about their life. They're not, they're not interested in that. Um, it seems unjust to co-opt them to produce some end for collective good. That's how the rights theorist thinks. But the alternative view is utilitarianism, which is how animal ethics committees work um, and they say look uh, in this context rights are inappropriate rights in the protective shield sense are inappropriate let's just give the animals a right to be considered at all by the ethics committee so they're given this interest in being considered the ethics committee weighs up the costs and benefits to the animals they may ask the researcher to refine the experiment or replace animals where possible or reduce their use of animals but there's no sense in which they'll say sorry, um, in principle, say sorry, this can't be done because animals have rights. Um, you've just got to work around the issues. So if you go utilitarianism for animals, then you can use them. Um, but you've got to give their interests the same weight as you would give humans, because otherwise it's speciesism. But you can be utilitarian about humans as well. Yeah, you could, you could. So a lot turns on whether we, we are living in a society or a, you know, an ethical space where we give rights in, mm. in the protective shield sense or whether we prefer utilitarianism. Because right. there is some utilitarian um, ethical decisions in testing on, say, new treatments for terminally ill cancer patients, for sure, instance. Sure, absolutely, so, like yeah. Brand, yeah. So they, yeah. And, and these people volunteer because they know right. that they're going to die in a few months. Mm. So they volunteer the, the hope, slim hope, that it might help them. Often yeah. it wouldn't. Yeah. But they're also contributing to the greater kind of scientific understanding as well. That's right. And so most, you know, biomedical thinking will kind of factor that in. If we pursue this treatment, how much suffering is going to be involved, what kind of quality of life improvements may arise you know it's about looking to the future forward-looking considerations are determining the decision and that's how utilitarians think they kind of what are the consequences of this action consequences of not performing the action mm. whereas the rights view is very backward looking it's like this individual comes into this situation with certain considerations um, weighing on them and we've got to do justice to them not just think about the consequences mm. so you know you know, society tends to be rights for humans, utilitarians for animals. 
Whereas animal rights kind of says, look, we should be one or the other um, completely. So you get yeah. the kind of Peter Singer view, which says everyone should be utilitarian, and the kind of rights views, which say, no, 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 utilitarianism is fundamentally problematic. We ought to extend rights across the board. Um, I, this is something that Alex and I were debating in, um, a couple of days ago on the train. We were going to a conference talking about this this conversation that we're going to have with you. Now, how stringent are ethics boards? Because Alex was... Because you had a question, like, do, bioethi do bioethicists even sit on ethics boards? Yeah, mm. like, how, how much do they actually try to reduce suffering um, and pain for the animal, or how much they, they ensure that the, the methodology or the protocol that researchers are using ensure, um, ensures that only the sufficient amount of animals suffer and no more than that, or yeah. only the sufficient amount of, yeah. or the, the least amount of uh, suffering occurs rather than, you know, this being uncontrolled. Yeah. Like how stringent are ethics because, boards yeah. on that? Because if you think about it, um, well, without, you know, my assumption would be that these ethics boards don't necessarily have the expertise in, say, the specific discipline to be able to make determinations about what is the best mm. methodology mm. and say the scientist to use an example may not have the ethical understanding to pick the most mm. ethical option so mm. the scientist is sitting there going it's easy i can get it i can get the job done fast and cheap if i mm. kill a thousand rats mm. um, so i'll ignore these other methodologies mm. and the ethics board might not have the understanding of those other methodologies so they approve the killing yep. of a thousand rats yeah how does that so, work? So, so, I mean, you're drawing attention to what a lot of people in the animal protection community see as a problem with the ethics committee system, is you've got an epistemic asymmetry between the different members of the committee. So, so I mean, a lot of jurisdictions, there's variation across jurisdictions, but roughly speaking, it's usually comprised of a scientist, a community representative, Right, someone from an animal protection group. So that's usually a lay person who has very little scientific background mm -hmm. at all. Then there might be a representative from um, a veterinarian like, or someone with veterinarian qualifications. And, and then there will be uh, someone representing the researcher or the research kind of space and maybe an ethicist. So, so there's different people yeah. on the committee. And so you do get cases where, you know, the, the ethics representative will be saying, look, this person is not giving the animal's interest adequate weight. And the scientist saying, no, 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 this use of animals is actually quite modest compared to the use that this other researcher had. Um, it's not a, uh, it's not a, um, a process that can really be uh, resolved once and for all. I think a lot's going to turn on the goodwill of the people involved, that they're all acting in good faith and trying to do their best, given the brief of the committee, which is to acknowledge mm -hmm. the ethical issues involved. But, you know, from a rights perspective, the problem is behind the process. The problem is that the ethics committee process begins under the assumption that humans are allowed to use animals mm -hmm. and there's responsibilities arising from that but nonetheless they're allowed to use them and that's the kind of once you accept that then a lot of people 
who have strong ethical views are really not included in the process at all. I mean, the you know you think about it. You, you've got experts running rings around you about the minutiae of biological research. You've got no way of responding to that. They have had a career working with animals. They don't understand. They're stuck, they don't, they're stuck in a paradigm. They're stuck in a paradigm. They don't yeah. feel. They don't feel the issue like you do. So what what scope can you have? Um, it's it's you can either be seen as um, an obstacle to be gotten round each time, or um, you can you know you can try and be strategic about it and sensitise them to the issue. But you know when there's a stack of 30 protocols or whatever is being looked at each meeting, uh, the individual animal that's is is really lost in the process. The value of philosophy and educating people about philosophy, then, because if you get these types of ideas into the heads of the scientists putting forward the ethical yeah. um, applications, and when they're sitting there designing their methodology, yeah. thinking about the ethical implications, yeah, that's probably where. Well, the, I used to when I was finishing my PhD, I would give uh, the the animal ethics officer at Sydney Uni invited me to talk about animal rights twice a year to new graduate students doing animal-based research. So, and he gave me um, carte blanche to, to talk about ethics in any way I wanted. So, so I really um, put it out there and, and I think it was a worthwhile exercise. But you know yourselves that you know, over time you get kind of enculturated into a particular discipline and you see how things work and who gets rewarded. You know, it's like life generally. It's hard to maintain a kind of an ethical perspective in the day-to-day -day grind. But at least I guess, you know, and this is where I think ethics training is useful, it at least kind of plants a seed that somebody thinks, oh, yeah, that was really important. I remember that being important. And so when they're going through this protocol, perhaps it may motivate them to think about refinement a bit longer or to think about replacement in more depth or yeah. whatever. But what I'm interested in is the duplication of research. You know, like, so, so how scientists work out whether the research is actually new and important. Mm. Like, how do you know that some researchers elsewhere haven't done the research like, uh, are there databases to search? And how freely available are those databases in order to ensure that the research is not being duplicated? You know, there's a lot that could be done, I think, um, to, to um, explore, you know, replacement and the justifiability of research. We're hitting 50 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of knew this coming in. We were saying, geez, this is going to be a tough interview to touch all the stuff we want to talk about in yeah. such a short amount of time. There's, there's other stuff that we'd want to talk about, but unfortunately we run out of time and Alex has got... Um, I've got a hot date with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But I guess, I guess one thing that... Um, have you read The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris? or that type No. Of? So he, um, he thinks there's objective morals if you just start with some, he thinks that morality is as objective as medicine is. So you have to start with some axioms and then from yeah. there you can build an objective moral push. He was pushing against moral relativism. But I guess what he said something that really struck me in that book was that 
you want to design a system where people don't have to think too much about making moral decisions. Mm. If you have a system where it's really difficult for people to be moral, then uh, people are going to pe- just be d- yeah. do immoral acts. Yeah. Um, and he gave an example of maximum security jails where you could put the most morally salient person in that environment, they have to do immoral acts to, to survive. Mm. And it's interesting, we have a society today where there are certain things that we recognize are immoral but the system is designed in such a way so animal consumption mm. for meat or mm. animal research mm. military all, all sorts mm. of things that's already pretty messed up mm. but as individuals we're almost incapable of making some 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 change so that um, or it's it's so difficult you're fighting against the current to actually be moral it'd be interesting if I, I bet this will happen in 100, 200 years, maybe 1,000 years, where we look back, and I think Peter Singer or Richard Dawkins was saying something to the same effect, that you know we look back at people who are slave owners, and we're like, mm. how could they possibly do it? Mm. Well, I think this moment in history right now should give mm. us some sort of insight about how mm. difficult it must have been for people to fight the system when everyone around them was basically mm. doing the same thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's some, there's some moral theories that just make life too demanding. So some versions of utilitarianism that don't recognise the um, act and omission distinction. So, so for some utilitarians, you're as responsible for your omissions as your actions. So, you know, all of us could be doing more to make the world a better place most of the time. So it turns out that most of what we do is wrong because we could yeah. be doing something better. Yeah. And, and similarly, you know, some kind of religious views make life very difficult as well. Mm. Uh, so I don't. I guess I don't. Uh, I don't know. You know, he must have a lot of faith in whatever method he's coming up with, right? Um, and like you said, you've got to start with fundamental axioms. But I guess philosophy's work is to, I guess, expose people to the different axioms. So that's how I see my work. It's like I'm, I'm, I don't really push a particular line. Like I'm just interested in educating people about the options mm-hmm. and then ultimately they will um, have to make the decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I, but I guess, you know, even in that idea, implicit is a concept of freedom mm-hmm. and that people are ultimately responsible. Whereas some of my, you know, Marxist colleagues may say, you know, uh, the whole focus on individuals is wrong. That's the system, and nothing will change unless we change the system. But again, I think you know. Well, then let's present people with that view, and and they can work to change the system. Um, I, I suppose to finish up, um, we don't know. Like with, f- f- okay. So, um, uh, are you taking on? postgraduate students to do research yeah. with you can yeah. you just talk about um, what yeah. sort of projects you have available yeah, great. and how people can get in yeah I've got some really good students so so I have one uh, fellow working on um, environmental aesthetics so he wants to argue that the beauty of nature uh, can be as effective a concept for the protection of nature as the value of nature. So you often get aesthetic value and ethical value as seen as logically distinct and, as, and he wants to kind of bring them together and, and look at a whole lot of existing arguments about environmental aesthetics and, um, and the value of nature and, and use it as a normative argument for the protection of nature. 
And I have another uh, student working in social epistemology at group beliefs. Mm. So when we attribute beliefs to a group, like, you know, the state holds this or the Australian society holds this or the, you know, the scientists believe this, mm -hmm. um, what do we mean by a belief and when can we legitimately ascribe a belief? Is it 50, 50 plus one yeah. hold the belief or is it consensus across the board or is it just there's opinion leaders in any group and if people accept those opinion leaders, that's the group belief. So he's looking at all of that, but particularly he's interested in the idea of a mind and a group mind. Mm. It's because in order to ascribe a belief to an entity, it seems like you need a mind. So he's interested in work on group mind. Sounds uh, particularly interesting with the current state of affairs with identity politics. That's and right. Like Ex exactly. That's really where we're headed, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then um, one other student I'll mention, he's working in free will and determinism. <laughs> and yeah, well, so we knew we'd have to have another <laughs> podcast with you at some stage. Maybe and we can talk to your student, actually. Yeah, yeah. He's... Up, he's, he's yeah, um, He's he's really interesting guy, um, and so he is interested in the idea of accepting determinism and embracing it, and exploring what follows for concepts of happiness and public policy related to punishment. If we actually accept that determinism is true and no one is responsible for anything, yeah. well, we're kind of like subscribed to that sort of philosophy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I oh, think free will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, compatibilism is just changing the topic, man. <laughs> That's yeah. what it is. Um, yeah. Cool. So, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, just Google him, um, John Hadley at UWS. Just put that in Google. Western Sydney. Western Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thirty million dollars, and still I'm um, <laughs> on the old system. Um, thank you so much. No for worries. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.